I do believe that leaders are not born. I mean, they're 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 trained, they're formed, they evolve, and there's different situations. It's this is a, a Clausewitz kind of quote, but you know, the best company commander isn't necessarily the best regional commander, who isn't necessarily the best brigade commander, and not the best uh, corps commander, because it takes different types of leadership at different levels, and if you can't adapt and evolve your leadership for different situations or different organizations, then you'll fall behind and be less effective, is what I would say. Never forget your core, you know, who you are and your core values, but how you apply your leadership to different situations, I think is, is key and being as effective as you can. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to episode 74 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I'm so thankful that you're joining us here today, whether you're on a run or a walk, maybe you're cleaning out the dishwasher, maybe you're on your morning commute. We really appreciate it. That's one of the cool things about a podcast is we can connect with you while you're doing other things. And on this podcast, we hope that it helps you become the type of leader that inspires others to be their best. And no matter where you are in your leadership journey, whether you're just getting started, whether you're a mid-level manager, or whether you're a senior executive who's been doing this for a long time, we wanna help you get to the next level. And we do that by bringing on amazing guests like our guest today. And today is a special episode for a couple different reasons. One is the first interview that we did in front of a live audience. And it's also with the wonderful Major General Retired, Dana Petard. And if you're not familiar with General Petard, well, you're in for a treat. He is a remarkable individual. He's a retired two-star general in the Army. He served as the ground commander in Iraq during the fight against ISIS. He's an author, speaker, triathlete. He's a regular contributor to national networks like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and others. And on this episode, we dive into his experience as an African-American at West Point, his fitness regime, how he has worked to combat the suicide epidemic in the military, his own story about considering suicide and his own mental health struggles, which we'll get to towards the end. And we also get into some questions from the audience. So please stick around to the very end. This is a really fun episode. And I learned that putting on a live event is no small task and it truly takes a team. And I want to give a special shout out to General Petard for inspiring us to do a live interview and help us get out of our comfort zone. He's a regular contributor to national networks and he enjoys doing live events. So when we were talking to him about doing an interview, he was like, hey, why don't we do it live? And I was like, ah, oh, it's really cool. We never thought about that. And we ended up doing that and putting this on and just shows you how, what a great leader he is because he inspired us to do something that we had not previously done. I also want to give a big shout out to the amazing volunteers at Intentional Leader that helped to make this possible, starting with Jaron Alexander, who was the first person to reach out to General Petard to get this conversation started and help create this fun event. Also want to give a shout out to Wes Cochran, Tim Janes, Ryan Brents, Austin Bunch, Natalie Walters, and Jim Freeze, the amazing volunteers at Intentional Leader. Thank you so much 
for your steadfast support and making this possible. I also want to give a shout out to Rajiv Srinivasan for helping me get up to speed on the live streaming software that we use for this event. Thank you so much, Rajiv, for helping me feel confident before this got started. And finally, thank you to the amazing members of the audience who asked questions at the end. I'm sorry if we didn't get to all the questions. I hope that we can do another one of these very soon. This was a lot of fun. And let us know what you thought. Please reach out to me at cal at calwalters.me. Give me some feedback. And speaking of volunteers, we are looking for a few motivated volunteers to help with our social media presence. We're a growing organization and we're always looking to get great people involved who have a passion for helping others live intentionally, helping others feel inspired, helping others become better leaders. If you'd like to apply to be a volunteer, uh, it's nothing fancy, but we're, we're a growing team. And if you'd like to join us at this early stage, we'd love to have you. If you want to consider, just shoot me an email at cal at calwalters.me. A little bit about our sponsor for today, which is Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm, providing human capital capital and technology services to help you optimize your performance. Higher Echelon can help you prepare your team for the rapidly changing complex and often ambiguous requirements of today's world. They'll help you adapt to the changing world with your leaders, with your processes, and also with your technology. So go visit higherechelon.com to connect with the amazing team at Higher Echelon and learn more about how they can help you and your team today. For show notes of this episode, just go to my website, calwalters.me. I also want to remind you about our YouTube channel. You can go there and watch these interviews. And so, hey, without any further ado, let's jump into this fun conversation with the inspiring Major General Retired Dana Pitard. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to the first Intentional Leader live podcast. We are so thankful that you're joining us here on Facebook, maybe you're on YouTube. Thank you so much. We just want to ask as you are engaged in this, please engage with us. Leave a comment. Let us know where you're listening from. Maybe you're a longtime Intentional Leader podcast listener. Please drop that in the comments. And we are so privileged tonight to have with us Major General Retired Dana Petard. We're going to get into an incredible interview with him. We're going to cover a lot of ground. First, it's going to be me and him having a conversation. And then at the end, you're going to get to hear some live questions from some select audience members. Also, if you want to leave a question or a comment in fa on Facebook or YouTube, we'll make sure and try to get to those questions at the end. A little bit about who we are as intentional leaders. So we release a new piece of content every week. One week, it might be a blog post or a podcast. And we're all about helping you lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. And no matter where you are in your leadership journey, maybe you are a brand new leader. Maybe you don't even consider yourself a leader. Or maybe you're a senior, a senior executive who's been leading for a long time. We want to help you get to the next level. And we do that by bringing on amazing guests like Major General Retired Dana Petard. And I want to give you a little bit of an intro into him. He's the author of the incredible book, Hunting the Caliphate. He is a speaker. He is an incredible triathlete. He was the ground commander in Iraq during the, the height of the, of the battle against ISIS. And we are so privileged to have him on the podcast tonight. So please join me in welcoming Major General Retired Dana Petard. General Petard, welcome to the show. Well, Cal, thanks a lot. Uh, it's great to be on The Intentional Leader. I think this uh, entire concept is neat. Well, thank you so much. And I know you're used to going live on CNN and on Facebook and CNBC and MSNBC. So this is old hat for you. But thank you for joining us on this first Intentional Leader live session. And I'm so pumped to talk to you about your story 
And I'd love to start by kind of rewinding the clock a little bit on your life. So my daughter is seven years old now. And, you know, I often think, you know, what is she going to be like when she grows up? And I wonder, are we doing, doing it right? But I see someone like you who's been incredibly successful. And I wonder who were some of the biggest influences on you growing up? If you think about life pre-West Point, who would you say were one of the one or two people that probably impacted you the most? Oh, sure. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I had a lot of influences. Obviously, the, I, I was an Army brat. So uh, my father uh, was uh, part of the reason why I wanted to even be a soldier was because of him. He had uh, enlisted in the Army in 1950 for Korea, the Korean War, and then went to OCS as a, as a sergeant and then uh, rose in ranks, became lieutenant colonel of uh, first artillery and then air defense. So it was initially because of my father that I wanted to be in the military. Another big influence was my mother, Um, smart as a whip. She was a mathematician. She was a Department of the Army civilian. In fact, she was the project mathematician for the testing of the Hawk missile uh, back at uh, White Sands Missile Range in Fort Bliss back in the 1950s. Um, Fiery red hair. She, uh, she, um, She was a force to be reckoned with. And then I, I would say a third one, if I can mention a third one, would be my grandmother, uh, who was the matriarch, my maternal grandmother, the matriarch of our family, who, who in 1925 married my, my grandfather and then said, forget it. She was in South Carolina, Jim Crow South. There's a better life. So she moved to Philadelphia. Uh, five of her nine siblings followed her. And then the great African migration, 1920s, 1930s, and her house became this way station where her siblings stayed for not weeks and days, but years. So they got their own homes. And uh, that's just such a powerful story. She she was iron willed and she uh, she lived to just three months short of her 105th birthday in in 2006. Oh, my goodness. Um, But also other influences, obviously, coaches, teachers, um, again, literally took a village. So when did you decide to go to West Point? Almost embarrassed to say that in that I was nine years old uh, when I saw uh, really? a National Geographic uh, magazine. Yes, it was uh, July 1969 and it uh, or the issue was July 1969 National Geographic. Now, again, I, I always have to be honest. I wasn't looking into it for for articles at the time. You know, so again, we're talking 1969. I think I was looking for uh probably scantily clad uh, natives. I don't know, but I picked it up. Uh, and there was an article about um, Dwight D. Eisenhower who had just passed away. And there was this one picture of uh, then General Eisenhower right before D-Day with all the maps of Europe behind him, just like this here. Uh, and this big table and to his right was uh, Field Marshal uh, Montgomery, to his left was Air Marshal Tedder. General Bradley and on down. And I looked at that and said, I want to be that. Um, you know, again, delusions of grandeur. Uh, but I, my family at that time was living on an Air Force base, Air, Air Force Station, actually, in Oregon, outside Corvallis, Oregon. And I called a meeting of my family that night. You know, I got my, my older brother, my mom and dad. And I said, you know, mom and dad, I, I want to go to West Point. And you know, at that time, they could have laughed and just said, what are you talking about? West Point, you know, only, they only had a handful of uh, African-American graduates at that time. Mm. Uh, but in, instead of laughing, they said, OK, 
you know, you got to work hard. Of course, I almost regretted that because anytime I stumble over the next few years, they'd say, oh, you're not going to, you're not going to get to West Point acting like that. <laughs> yeah, but, they use uh, that, I'm sure. Yeah. But that was 1969. So eight years later, uh, I entered West Point as a, as a member of the class of 81 in July 6, 1977. You know, and I think West Point shapes people differently. Some people love West Point. Some people just kind of gut it, gut through it. Some people are kind of in between. I'm curious from your perspective, how was West Point for you? I, I wasn't one of those who wanted to become a, a cadet necessarily. And a lot of people really got into being a cadet, which is okay. But that really wasn't for me. I, the reason why I went to West Point was because I wanted to lead soldiers in combat. You know, again, these delusions of grandeur of, of uh, being like a theater commander. So I, so my whole feelings on West Point are, are different than a lot of people. I, I never thought about quitting at all. Uh, at all. Uh, now, there's another side of that. Uh, as I was getting to really leave Texas, I was from El Paso, Texas. My mother wanted to be closer to her parents. I was the last child, uh, uh, you know, to to graduate from high school. So um, that was her her signal, I think, to to leave my dad. <laughs> so we can talk about dynamics of a marriage. But she she had a couple of uh, of choices as a Department of Army civilian, and uh, they were all on the East Coast. She wanted to be near. Her, uh, her parents in Philadelphia who were getting older. Um, so about, about a, a, well, maybe two months before uh, uh, going to West Point, uh, she said, hey, um, I'll, be, I'll be going to West Point too. I said, no, mom, you can't go. I'm going, I, I'm going to West Point. You, you can't go. Um, so she, again, a mathematician, she worked in the Office of Institutional Research uh, as a uh, data branch, uh, support chief, whatever. So when she, when she arrived, she was waiting on a, on a house. So she stayed at the fair hotel for six weeks. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like echoes of MacArthur or whatever. And for a while we didn't speak. I said, you know, mom, I, I, my mom being here is not cool. Um, but it turned out to be one of the neatest things. In fact, um, she became my best friend in many ways and, uh, ended up living in the town of Newburgh. It's a great place as a senior to have after parties. Uh, it was all good. Um, but um, my feeling on, on West Point, though, in that sense, it became home because uh, that's where my, my, my mother was. Uh, so hmm. I, the cadet life was okay. Um, for someone who wanted to go to West Point since, uh, since literally the fourth grade, I didn't know a whole lot about West Point uh, as far as the cadet hijinks kind of things. So I kind of put up with that, uh, but I was focused on, uh, you know, being a leader. I, I previously interviewed Sarah Roberts. She works at LinkedIn and she was telling me about her experience as a female at, at West Point. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, only a few at the time African-American cadets were, were there at West Point. What was that like as an African-American cadet at West Point? Well, you, you also mentioned women. My class was only the second class to have women. And, um, and it was interesting look, watching the, the upperclassmen, how they treated um, females. Um, early on, we all kind of said, not, you know, not to us, those are our classmates. So uh, just as much as we could as please would not allow any kind of mistreatment, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it wasn't any different uh, for many of us, because since the kin since kindergarten, I always had females in my class, so it was no different for West Point. As as an African American West Point, it 
it was a slightly different experience uh, in many ways. I, I think it was, and some wonderful instructors and, and TAC officers, but sometimes suffer from uh, low expectations. It was interesting that maybe the expectations were for some reason lowered because I was a person of color. I, I always got that impression um, uh, or often got that impression. Uh, so that's, that's never good in many ways. Um, but again, the experience at West Point to me overall was very, very positive. Uh, there's the rock squad that, and a lot of my African-American classmates uh, bonded in uh, rock squad swimming. Um, but I was different. I, I could swim. I, I loved to swim. So I think I was one of three or maybe four of my African-American classmates uh, who, who swam and swam well. Uh, so I missed that bonding with uh, me and my African-American classmates early on. Uh, but where we did bond later was kind of figuring out um, social activity because they had buses coming up, but there was very few um, females of color. Um, not that you have to have females of, be with females of color, but, you know, a rainbow uh, is always nice. But we wanted to have those options and the kind of music many of us liked, like R&B. So the Com Contemporary Affairs Seminar became a big deal with us. In fact, I became the social chairman. And part of that was looking for, for women in colleges within a hundred mile radius. Uh, so that's where we began uh, really as a social group, but it was the fifth regiment. Uh, there was, you know, regiments one through four, but it, as an African-American, we said, well, we're gonna start our own regiment, the fifth regiment. And, you know, we had this symbol as we walked through with, the, with our hands. Uh, so that, that helped life to be bearable because it helped us on a, on a social, from a social side. But also, uh, got along well with all my classmates. I mean, where I came from, the high school in El Paso, was only like 3% um, African-American. I mean, it was, it was really an all-white high school. Uh, there were more blacks in my class at West Point than there were back in my high school. My high school of 4,000 people, where I was a student body president. So the idea of we're all in this together um, was seeming uh, with me you know, back in uh, junior high and high school. So you graduate West Point, you, you go off into the Army, fast forward to 9-11. We just took a moment as a nation to reflect on that 20-year anniversary of that terrible day in our country. I'm curious, where were you on 9-11? And as you reflect back, as your life certainly has been impacted by this in a very real way, where were you and, and how what were you reflecting on as we as we kind of remembered that 20 year anniversary of 9/11 this past month you know 9/11 for so many of us it was this the start of of obviously the global war on terror but constant deployments and the effect on not only us in uniform but our our families uh, reflecting on the the 20th anniversary of 9/11 uh was in some ways soured, I think, by by seeing what occurred in Afghanistan. Um, that's not how we all thought it it would end or or should end. But back to September 11, 2001, I was uh, a student uh, doing a fellowship at at the Harvard School of of Government, uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and so someone this last Friday reminded me that he was with me at that time. Um, and this person who is a fellow classmate of mine at West Point was the one who said, Hey, Dana, um, a, a, a plane has hit one of the world trade centers. 
Uh, I said, really? So we both went into this building called the Forum uh, on the campus, and there was this big screen, um, huge screen. It took up the entire wall that they had CNN on. And just as we walked in, boom, the, the second tower was hit by a, a, another plane. Um, this guy and I looked at each other and said, we're at war. Mm. That person uh, and I both were going to be commanding brigades uh, in 2002. We were just there for a year, and both of us were going to brigade command. I was going to take command of a com uh, uh, armored combat team, um, and he was going to take command of an aviation brigade. That person who was with me was Jimmy McConville, who is mm. now the chief of staff of the Army. Um, wow. So, uh, again, I, I think of him. I think of, of mm. all of us at that time and the effect it had on us. Um, and, you know, he's now leading our Army. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, Afghanistan right at that moment of the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And, you know, I think for Afghanistan, there were there are a lot of veterans who, who've really struggled with trying to process that. And I think it, it gets at kind of the larger challenges we have in the veteran community for mental health. And you did some amazing work when you were the commander at Fort Bliss. And uh, you really took the suicide uh, epidemic extremely seriously. And you did some innovative stuff. And I, I wonder, can you tell us what led you to take that on in such an intentional way when you were at Fort Bliss? Well, it certainly wasn't my initial plan in taking command at Fort Bliss in 2010 that, that I'd be focused on that area. But I was still uh, moving household goods into my house when I got a call from, I guess, the, the, the post-duty officer who said, Hey, sir, we have a situation in El Paso uh, where we have a soldier who's who's threatening to to kill his wife um, and possibly kill himself, um, and the, the the police have surrounded the place. I thought, well, where is it? Well, and they told me the address. I'm from El Paso, so I thought, oh, let me just drive down there. I, so I drove down there. So being close, he really he released his wife, but I got there just in time uh, for him to have, have killed himself just as I arrived. I mean, I didn't even get to see him, talk to him, but, um, so that was the first thing, uh, that kind of hit me. And then there was a unit, it was an air defense unit that had just, um, returned from a, a Middle East tour or deployment. And there were, uh, at least one soldier in that unit, um, committed suicide. Another soldier uh, was killed in a motorcycle accident, and another soldier uh, had another mysterious death. And so I started to get focused on what I called high-risk behavior. And it wasn't really on suicide. It was, how can we prevent preventable deaths? Uh, so suicide was just one of them at the time. So by focusing on all deaths um, that I felt were preventable, um, the suicide rate would eventually go down. But a good point on that one is taking advantage of the, uh, I think it was called the, the post council, whatever. Uh, so every time there was a death, um, and this monthly meeting, we would go over that, you know, like the forensics of it, who knew, who knew. And, and that was very helpful. But at the time I believed kind of what the army believed at the time is that, well, most people who, who 
high-risk behavior, take their own lives. Uh, that was a part of the waivers that were granted uh, in the height of, of um, Iraq and Afghanistan, the Armenian people between 2004 and 2007. Um, so all, all you have to do is uh, screen out the, the bad people. Um, that was kind of the, uh, the way people thought. And then a couple of behavioral health specialists and doctors from William Beaumont uh, Hospitals, a regional medical facility there, started talking to me. I said, you know, anybody, anybody can commit suicide. It has nothing to do with that. Um, and I listened, learned, and thought about it. And then it became an epiphany, which is, you don't just focus on um, uh, what you consider the bad soldiers. It's everybody. Hmm. Once we learned that um, as a chain of command, this was a team effort. It wasn't just me. As a chain of command, it was, if you're focusing on everybody, then how do you move forward? So I ended up having 32 different initiatives that were all interconnected in many ways. But the one probably by itself that really helped was something called assist training. Maybe you're familiar with it. Applied mm -hmm. Suicide Intervention Skills Training, ASSIST. I am, yeah. Well, well, the idea at the time was maybe one person per company, um, and then maybe became platoon, uh, could be ASSIST trained. Thought so much of that and saw how it worked uh, that eventually said everybody on post will go through ASSIST training. So we had it as a part of the in-processing. We added two and a half more days so that people could go through the assist training. And what that ended up doing is you recognize signs not only in yourself, but you recognize signs in, in other people. So now we started having now thousands of soldiers um, and we opened up the family members, but thousands of people who were censors. Um, and then we had to try to change the culture as far as uh, getting help. And that, that uh, asking for seeking assistance was a strength. I mean, we made that a campaign. So all those together moved Fort Bliss from um, really having one of the highest suicide rates in the Army in 2010. By 2012, we had one of the lowest suicide rates, not just in the Army, but the entire U.S. military for a wow. post. So hmm. very, very proud of that, of the team effort that went into that. And, and that seems like on its face, something that you, that you couldn't affect in such a way, but yet you, you took that seriously and you made those initiatives a priority and, and the results speak for themselves. Uh, I, in fact, I remember the assist training. I, I remember in processing at Fort hood, a different base and, you know, kind of cynically being like, Oh, I got to go to this, the suicide prevention training. But I recall learning a lot in that couple day training, learning about, you know, feeling confident that if someone really, if I was worried that someone might be thinking about suicide, that I knew what to do and how to respond. And so I think that's fantastic. And it just shows the importance of training on stuff that, that's easy to overlook or easy not to find time for. And one of the things that I really respect about your leadership in that regard is that you also took some risk in sharing your own struggles with, with depression. And so I'm curious if you could tell us a little about, if you're comfortable, um, your, your journey with that and the, the process of, of thinking about sharing that as a very senior leader in, in the context of trying to help the, the soldiers out at Fort Bliss. 
Sure. But a couple of things before I mention that uh, yeah, yeah. on some of those initiatives, I mean, some things that you were used to maybe on a deployment that you didn't have back in Garrison is we had, I made the post tab at least one gym that was 24 hours. Uh, so we, we did this um, analysis of when people were uh, at most high risk, uh, the suicide or other things. And so oftentimes it was at night and you didn't have your buddies mm-hmm. around. Uh, so uh, 24-hour gyms. We then had a restaurant on post, made it 24 hours. Uh, we, we made it later for places like the library, um, the, the chapel. You know, I asked the, the post chaplain, hey, we need a 24-hour uh, chaplain on duty. So we got that. So oh, we do. Yes, yes, sir. We, we got that. Okay. So I called the chaplain, at, that on-duty chaplain at 2 a.m. Well, he rolled over, you know, was with his wife and said, hello. Um, I said, no, nope, that's not what we're looking for. So as a part of resiliency uh, campus, there was a chapel there and there was somebody physically there. And, um, and a lot of people did end up seeing them. The, the idea of, of, of sharing <clears throat> my own story, um, I had originally got that idea from uh, General Carter Ham, who's uh, right now is the outgoing AUSA president. But uh, he had been my division commander in the first year division um, uh, when I was a DCG uh, d- deployed, and uh, he shared his story. Um, so I thought, well, if he shares his. I, yeah, I should share my own. And that was that. Um, just like everybody else, uh, or most people—not everybody, but most people—that at some point you had suicide ideation. I described a time where. Um, a tough time in my marriage, my wife, that um, I decided that uh, as I was driving along, it passed my mind. Uh, it was uh, in the Hampton Roads area. It was the uh, monitor Merrimack Bridge. That I'll just drive off this bridge. No one will care. Um, and I was just in a bad place. Um, but eventually through, um, through, through counseling, um, marriage counseling with my wife, but also um, a therapist, uh, outside of the post because I didn't trust, uh, um, you know, that at the time. Um, and it worked out. I got help and was able to move forward. And, and what was your thought process on sharing that at, at that time in that context? And I, I didn't like sharing it initially, but I, I kept hearing comments like, well, it's easy for you to say you're uh, hmm. about, about different things we're doing on post. Um, because you know, you're, you're a general, you don't, you never had that problem. And I said, no, uh, generals, we no different from anybody else. Um, in fact, one of my neighbors who I just really liked, um, John Rossi, whose wife was from El Paso. Also, we went to rival high schools and we ended up, uh, being in a bad place himself. Um, in in 2016, two days before taking command in Huntsville, Alabama, he was a two-star general. He was about to get his third star. But deep inside, he thought he wasn't good enough and that uh, he had been fooling people, which, you know, is crazy because he was such a, a talented person. But again, we all have different demons. And then he, he took his life. Um, uh, both his wife's family and his family were all there in Huntsville for his change of command. Hmm. Um, so it can happen in anyone. And we know of a uh, uh, chief of naval operations um, back in, I think it was in 1995, 
uh, took his own life. Um, so it can happen to anyone. Yeah. And sir, thanks so much for sharing that. Cause I think it normalizes the issue. Uh, I think it allows anyone to know that just because you're experiencing challenges and difficulty, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It just means you're human and that you can be a strong individual and still struggle. And I think I appreciate you so much sharing that. Uh, and I think it's really important for leaders to see that and, and junior soldiers to see that. I'm curious. So we've only got a few more minutes and then we're going to bring in some audience members for some questions, but I'm wondering practically, what are some of the things that have helped you the most as you've, you know, as, as you struggle with that, just like I do. And so many do, uh, what have you found really helps practically to keep you at your best? Yeah, I, we're all all different. I, I, I think it's trying to build resiliency uh, within you, you yourself, you know, know thyself first, I guess, resiliency within your family and ideally those around you. And I, and I thought it was a pretty good model, the comprehensive um, fitness. Uh, it was uh, physical fitness, which always to me helped. It was a stress reliever. Um, uh, mental fitness emotional fitness, uh, social fitness, family fitness, and I think spiritual fitness overall. And then I added one more, which was financial fitness, is because um, uh, many people, roots of their stress can be you know, f financial issues. So it was been a big um, advocate of, of helping people financially um, and figuring out what do they need to do to make sure that uh, they are financially independent? And to this day, still talk about now generational wealth. How do you keep that going? Uh, not just for yourself, but for generations beyond you. Uh, but um, it, comprehensive fitness um, in that regard has been very helpful uh, to build a personal resiliency. One, one follow up on physical fitness, because, you know, a lot of folks want to be physically fit. I mean, it's not a secret that if you go work out, it's going to make you look better. It's going to make you feel better. Has that always been something that's come easy to you? Being being able to be disciplined with physical fitness. I know you're a triathlete. I mean, Frank, you, you, look, you look great. I mean, I, I think that obviously you've been able to figure out a recipe for staying disciplined with your physical fitness. Yeah, I think it it goes with having goals, you know, the triathlons, again, it's, it's not an Ironman triathlon. I mean, they're sprint or Olympic triathlons, uh, but it, by constantly training for them, that means I, I'll bike, either bike or stationary bike, run, swim every week. Um, so that is, you know, is a, is an objective. Um, and then working out certainly with weights is to, Help me do better. And also, I'll say look better because now I have two, my two sons. They're 26 and 28. And we have this every year we go somewhere. We go to some island. Uh, my wife and her two sons are now with their uh, fiancés and, and wife. Um, um, and we always have this, this, this beach body contest. And I, you know, I don't want to lose I, or I, I don't want to come a distant third. So that also keeps me going, uh, not just on working out, but also uh, nutrition um, uh, whatever I can to keep an advantage to try to, uh, not lose. Uh, now it's by body parts. You know, they, they have me in legs. I mean, they can squat their butts off, but, um, <laughs> I, I do air squats. I do everything, but, but, um, 
So that's incentive. Finding things that you can grab onto. Um, and I, I truly think anybody can do this. Um, been fortunate, never smoked, never, never, never drank or haven't, haven't drank since I was probably uh, in my 20s. Um, it just was something that I just didn't think I needed. Um, and, and then getting more serious on nutrition. Um, so that's all been very, very helpful. Well, so you got to have that morning though, where you get up and you're like, I don't want to go for that swim or I don't want to go for that run. Where, where do you go to on those mornings? Yeah, I, um, I may sleep in because I believe in getting <laughs> seven hours of sleep. Um, but as a minimum, you know, and, and, and I may take a, a cheat day once a week, but it's not designed that way. It's just, if I go to bed late, I want to make sure I get that seven hours of sleep. Um, but as a minimum, I will still do. I think it's at least 60 to 100 push-ups in the morning. I'll do um, 100 abdominals. Um, I'll do 20 air squats. I'll do that in the morning. I'll do the evening. That's always the minimum. And then during the day, even at work, I'll do a minute and a half to two minutes of um, uh, planks three times. Um, you know, in the morning, around lunch, in the afternoon, just to keep things going. After each plank, I'll then do dips with my, my windowsill in my office, whatever. Um, so just staying active. And then also my Fitbit, making sure that I, I, I try to get 100,000 steps a week. Uh, so that means you got to average about 14,000 uh, to 15,000 steps um, a day. And again, that's, that's just steps. It's movement, moving. Uh, one thing for, I think, is being as, uh, being as, as uh, I'll say longevity, keeping longevity uh, is moving, moving. Uh, I don't take escalators. I take steps. I mean, just, just small yeah. things. So those little habits. I love that. I think that's great. Um, all right. Hey, so, well, Dana, we're going to bring in our first question from an audience member. It's going to be from Nate Brookshire. So I'm going to bring Nate, uh, into the event here and, uh, Nate, go ahead and ask your question. Hey, sir. Uh, great to see you. I think we've uh, chewed a lot of the same dirt over the years. I, I think <laughs> we may have seen each other in Bosnia at one time, but, uh, I'm sitting here at Fort Riley, uh, and I know you've uh, had several, uh, you know, interactions with this community. But I can tell you uh, that a lot of the things that you've done have stuck, and that influence that you yielded there at Fort Bliss uh, scaled to the Army Enterprise, and uh, we as leaders uh, do appreciate that. Uh, my question for you is: You talked about changing a culture uh, as you implemented um, these measures. Uh, did you get pushback? And and if you did, how did you? you uh, break that paradigm and move forward and, and accomplish what you did in two years. Yeah, Nate. Um, well, first of all, great seeing you. Uh, you know, Fort Riley is near and dear to my heart. That's where I met my, my wife, Lucille, as a young lieutenant. And then uh, um, going back there as a DCG to her hometown was just pretty cool. Um, it, oh, there's always going to be pushback when uh, when you try something different or innovative. I mean, and, and the Army is this, this huge organization. Uh, we can call it a learning organization, but it's also a big bureaucratic organization. So, yeah, there's, there's going to be pushback. Um, even the uh, something I thought as simple as uh, making the gym, one at least one gym on Fort Bliss, 24 hours. I mean, the garrison commander community went crazy all the way up to, I think it was, I don't know if it's so-called IMCOM, but it was IMCOM back then. And it was like, you can't do that. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, we can. Um, and we'll find ways and we'll, you know, you work with people. I just didn't want to be dictatorial on it. 
but making the hours later for so many different entities on post. But also um, one thing uh, that was helpful was making it easier for our soldiers to socialize. So if some of you are on the line, you remember Fort Bliss, went to great lengths to open up the post. Our natural reaction as soldiers, as it should be, is security. So it's close the post. I remember when I first first drove into Fort Bliss uh, on, um, uh, in civilian clothes, I wasn't the commander yet, just driving there. And um, I had sunglasses. And uh, the guy at the gate said, you know, it was pretty, pretty rough. So, uh, take off those sunglasses. Said, oh, well, hello to you, too. Uh, so I did. Um, and he, he eyed me up and down. Um, and I said, well, can I just use my driver's license? He said, no, this is a military installation. So then I had to show my ID card. Then obviously identified. I wasn't. It was different. But uh, that was the first impression. So definitely changed all that um, on how people were treated coming in. And then we opened the post up to, to anybody who, who had identification. Because we had this place called Freedom Crossing. We wanted to turn that into a place that not just our soldiers, but people of El Paso would enjoy interacting with their soldiers. And I'll tell you for a while there, Thursday nights on Fort Bliss with the, uh, the Irish pub, uh, the, the tin theater, uh, tin screen uh, theater there with great prices, civilians who go there too. There was a lot more interaction. You walk down that area and you saw lots of men and women, uh, soldiers, uh, just having a good time. And that's a part of being a part of your community. Uh, so there was so much pushback on that. Uh, in fact, I think that was one of the first things uh, that uh, when I left Fort Bliss that was changed. There was always some kind of emergency uh, to, to change that uh, or urgency. Uh, and people were really afraid that by doing that, it would make Fort Bliss unsafe. And one thing I'll tell you is that, um, well, they were right that the crime rate changed. Uh, the crime rate, rate went down. I, I don't know if it's because people were just more um, observant. Uh, they were looking out for people, but the crime rate went way down. Uh, so um, that period of time um, as an experiment kind of worked, worked out pretty well. I am sorry that it went back to um, more, more or less a closed post because that made a difference in the, the social fitness that we were trying to establish with our soldiers and families. I appreciate it, sir. It's good seeing you again. Uh, great seeing you too. All right, sir. Next, we've got a question coming from Colonel Mo Barnett. <laughs> Mo Barnett, how are you? Hey, sir. I'm I'm well. It is uh, truly good to see you and an honor. Uh, I'm kind of like you right now, so I'm trying to trying to move in here. Just uh. Just got to Fort Knox, uh, serving as the deputy commander for Cadet Command, uh, working for Johnny Davis. Uh, thanks, sir. Uh, I think the last time I saw you, we were in the desert. We were in Kuwait uh, on a Patriot site. Uh, so uh, <laughs> something I noticed near and dear to your heart. Uh, I think you told me that your roommate at West Point was from my hometown as well, was from Gary, Indiana. Uh, I don't know if you remember having that conversation, but I do. Uh, John Taylor is one of, definitely, one of my best friends. I just saw him. That's this right, last sir. Weekend. In fact, we, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that conversation attended, stuck with me. Wow. Just attended his father's funeral on Sunday. 
wow. just a couple days ago. Yeah. Hey, sir, so I, I have two questions. So I, I asked for permission earlier to ask uh, multiple questions. <laughs> you don't need so permission. I do, have two <laughs> <laughs> I do have two questions for you. So um, I, I know we talk about a lot about leader misconduct and then, you know, it gets lonely at the top. Just curious, as you became, as you matured and became a senior leader in the Army and your uh, peer group changed, how did you manage that and how did you decide on what circle of friends to keep or uh, really as a general officer, uh, you don't see geos with a lot of friends. How did you manage those social networks? And you talked about that in terms of West Point. I think that was one of your mechanisms for getting through West Point, having the uh, that group of folks who uh, look like you in some cases, and then folks you probably had other things in common with. I'm just curious how you manage that as a senior leader, and what advice would you would you give as folks continue to navigate at senior levels, not just in the army but in other organizations? Yeah, Mo, I, I think that's actually a great question. Uh, there was an article done, and maybe many of you have seen it. Uh, I think I think it's called the Bathsheba syndrome, um, and it. It really talks about uh, a certain loneliness at the top. Um, it used the example of of King David from the Bible, and this the whole thing of the affair and and uh, Bathsheba. He wanted Bathsheba, um, and even sent her husband to the front, having killed uh, where he got killed in battle, so he could have her. And the idea was, well, it is lonely at the top if you don't have some peers near you who can say, "Wait a minute, King David, do you really want to do that?" Um, so it, it applies more than just in the military. I see it. We see it in the business world. We see it um, um, with I mean, political um, government. Uh, you see it uh, even with pastors, priests. You see some level, which might be, you know, the term is misconduct, that you don't have, you, as you get more senior, you have less and less people to say or, or check on you and say, hey, wait a minute, sir, you, you sure you want to do that? Um, so I, I, I really took that, that one to heart. Um, when I was a division commander, uh, first round division at, at, at Fort Bliss, we would have these runs or, or PT with all the battalion commanders. And if anybody up there who's a battalion commander back then uh, can testify, wanted to make sure that they all knew each other. Um, and so we, we had some PT and then I said at the very end, okay, uh, do you know, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander, do you know, uh, who's to your left, two people down? And he said, uh, no, I said, okay, that's a problem. Your peers have, first of all, mo the most influence on your career because they'll be in different places. They'll say, Hey, you know, so-and-so, you know, Mo Barnett, he's pretty dang good. Um, but also it's peer-to-peer -peer counseling, mentoring, and um, camaraderie. I know for me on on some deployments, as I became more senior, um, when I was in Kosovo, um, I was lucky to have a battle buddy, uh, Colonel Wally Golden, who happened to be a classmate from West Point, but he commanded the Aviation Brigade in the 1st Unit Division. Um, we would just talk. It was somebody who could tell you that, your stuff stunk, you know, um, your stuff was as good as you think it is. You need that. Um, and you need that from your, your spouse, but you need that from people all around you. Um, 
or you may end up doing something that you'll regret. Uh, Wally Gold and I kept that up in Iraq. We were in two different places. We'd find time to call each other and just check on one another. Uh, got different friends like that. Uh, when I was a battalion commander, the person who was that was uh, a fellow battalion commander named Mick Nicholson. Uh, Class 82 later was the uh, four-star in charge of Afghanistan. Uh, but we had that kind of relationship where we could we could talk plainly. Uh, so I, I I feel very strongly about that. And I, I recommend that, that article, the Bathsheba uh, Syndrome, um, so keeping those peer to peer, because it does get more lonely at the top and everybody wants to please you as a, you know, brigade commander, division commander, a core commander. Um, and so you have very few people who can tell you the truth, uh, on you, um, in the corporate world, you do have the board of directors on a publicly traded company. They'll tell you your stuff isn't, isn't uh, doing well, but, but still it's the same thing. If you're a CEO, have a close relationship with your CFO. Um, you know, I'm a vice president. I have close relationships with, with other VPs, um, in my the company, I'm in a publicly traded company. Um, again, that kind of feedback is always helpful. Okay, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, my, my second question. So I'm a former DPA instructor at West Point. So I probably oh, get with a heart. the department with a heart. Absolutely, sir. I'd, I'd probably get in trouble if I didn't ask you, a. A fitness question. I know that's part of your your persona. At least my image of you has always been one of uh, a, a, a guy who's in great physical condition, and that's one of your reputations. At least in the circles that I travel in, when I talk about you, that's what folks think about: great leadership, physically fit. Uh, my question is how. As you've matured, how's your physical regimen? So my image of you, the last time I saw you was in the 24-hour gym in Kuwait uh, in the morning, really getting after it. Uh, and that was several years ago. How has your physical regimen, as you as you, you have matured, uh, changed in order to maintain uh, that what you do, considering where you've come from and the things that you've done in the Army and otherwise? Yeah, it really hasn't changed since uh, I was, you know, there at uh, Camp Arab John back and forth. Um, it, it really hasn't, except, um, I, I, you know, my run times have uh, gotten a little bit slower. Um, and I, I do more cycling than I did back then because uh, I had to up my game in cycling for, for triathlons. But having that regimen of, of working out, uh, I may not be able to bench as much as I benched back then. Uh, but still, um, I just think that's important. Um, it's been important to me uh, from a, a mental and physical fitness perspective. Uh, but again, you challenge yourself. I, I, uh, my wife likes to laugh that uh, when I was a troop commander, company commander, anybody beat me on the PT test, you know, three-day pass and, and, the, and uh, a case of the beverage of their choice. So the few people did that, it might be a case of uh, soda, a case of beer, a case of wine. Um, I did that as a battalion commander. It just made me work out harder. I was a brigade commander with six battalions. My wife said, wait a minute, I don't know you, if we can afford that. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, you know, you have little faith. So we made it instead of um, a case, it was a six pack. Uh, but I, I can tell you on maybe two hands now, two hands, those who beat me on the extended scale PT tests in those in that brigade, just again, it was a motivator. Um, and 
And you, our own young soldiers, men and women, they want to know that their leaders um, can do what we ask them to do. I felt the same way in combat. Um, at times going on patrols, I, I, I knew that as a senior leader, um, I got good advice uh, when I was a battalion commander from a corps commander who said, only do what you can do. What, only do what only you can do. And I thought, was this like Yoda? Uh, what's, what's that mean? Because uh, he never visited my training. And I, I was uh, kind of pissed off. Um, and I think he heard about it. So he came and saw me and said, hey, I'm the Corps commander. And this is what I'm looking at. And this, I do what only I can do. And that helps the unit. I didn't fully understand that then, but then I, I obviously understood it. And, you know, as a brigade commander in, in combat, nobody knew the brigade AO better than me um, because it was a brigade AO. Now, no one knew the battalion AOs better than the battalion commanders in the company, the same thing. Um, so I really focused on doing what only I could do. But at the same time, for morale, the soldiers still need to see that you can do uh, what you ask them to do. So I'd go on certainly patrols, uh, but I never forgot. Um, as a brigade commander, I know I was a successful battalion commander. I didn't need to do that again because I had great battalion commanders um, as an example. So um, you didn't, not falling back on your comfort zone. Again, I know that's not your question, uh, but pass it on to you. Yeah, you sure really appreciate both the answers there. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck to you. <laughs> All right, Dana, now we have a question from Hunter Dempster. Hey, sir. Cool, <laughs> it's been great hearing about your leadership. Unfortunately, I cannot say that I've run into you before, like the previous two gentlemen, but maybe someday down the line. Well, my question, um, I'll go ahead and put it out there. As a retired general officer, what challenges have you encountered while navigating the civil military gap? And do you feel pressure to remain nonpartisan regarding recent political debates on military events? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I feel like I can speak my mind. Um, always have. Uh, so that only changed. Uh, you know, I, I felt like I could speak my mind uh, in the military. Um, um, but I was definitely nonpartisan. Um, now that I'm retired, still speak my mind. I try not to be partisan. Only because I, if, if you want people to listen to you, especially on if it's military matters, that's why I've uh, been able to appear on um, CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC, which are all different, different uh, you know, leanings, left and right leanings, um, by just sticking with the facts. But that's me personally. I, I mean, others can be more partisan. Um, I know that's just not not me. Um, some say that general officers shouldn't even speak out at all. Um, and I think that's wrong. I didn't sign up for, for being, um, you know, being a priest where I can't, can't say anything. Uh, so I think people should speak their mind. Um, um, especially when they're retired out of the military and um, understanding though, that there are consequences for actions. Uh, if you, I'm in a publicly traded company. I know that if I um, anger uh, um, OEMs or, or different um, uh, customers, um, then you know my value to the company does go down. Um, that's just a reality. Does that stop you from speaking your mind? No. But just understand that you could have there could be consequences 
uh, to certain things that you say. And that's in anything that you do. You weigh that. There are risks. Um, and I wish that people would be taught more about taking, uh, you know, calculated or, or managing risk better. Again, I know you're a second lieutenant, so you probably, that's probably too long of an answer from what you're uh, looking for. No, sir, you answered everything uh, very understandably. Appreciate it. No, thank you. And good luck to you, too. What, what you. branch are you? I'm in. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, got, I got my heart for the armor, though. Well, my brother was infantry. Uh, so, okay. yeah, he was infantry. I was armor. My dad was artillery. I don't think. Jaron, let's go with you, buddy. Let's see how, you, see how your comms are. Hey, sir, I shouldn't be muted, right? Nope, I got you. Perfect. Um, my question, you know, first and foremost, thank you for, you know, doing this session. I think it's, it's valuable, not just for military personnel, but for civilians as well. Uh, so we really appreciate your time. Um, so what are some of the personal or professional challenges you encountered pre and post retirement in regards to deciding, you know, what you want to do next in life, whether it be with work or uh, with regards to family? Oh, sure. I think, Garen, you're probably going to have to mute your mic because we hear the rest of the restaurant there. Oh, thanks. I, you know, I, I'd always thought. Um, I first of all, there were a number of times uh, uh, military career where I thought of uh, um, resigning um, and or retiring. Um, I think it was three different times. And then 9-11 occurred. And then I said, man, nah, that's what I can help bring to the table um, with what many of us have been trained to do. Our country needs us. So after 9-11, didn't even think about that. But everybody's got to retire or resign at some point. Um, you know, my old friend, uh, General Mark Milley is going to have to leave at some point. He's chairman of staff, but he's got to leave. Same thing with Jim McConville. So knowing what you want to do and setting the conditions to do that. I mean, I went to the School of Advanced Military Studies, which was cool, Sam's. Um, but to, uh, to an employer, they look at that like, what's that? Um, so if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have gotten my master's um, at, you know, a regular college. Um, and certainly the fellowship of Harvard was certainly very helpful. But, but figuring out what you want to do and don't sell yourself short. Um, I was very fortunate. I mean, there's not a, all sorts of press, good or bad, about me, uh, um, you know, over the years. Um, so I just thought, there's no one who wants to uh, um, even think about hiring me, but I, I was very surprised. Um, had a, a number of uh, really nice offers from everything from Bank of America, Airbnb, um, Northrop Grumman, all sorts of uh, different things. Uh, because I, what I realized is that at different companies, I mean, what they want, they're looking for is leadership and growing their business depending on what that business is. But I, I would say, as you're thinking about um, uh, leaving the military, is decide kind of what you want to do. You want to be um, corporate structure. You want to be in a, a nonprofit. You want to be a government. You want to be maybe in education. I have a number of peers have become either assistant superintendents or, or superintendents or become professors. I, I don't sell yourself short. 
because I believe you can really do almost anything. Now that I, I work for a manufacturing company, I realize that well, I'm competing against people who have been doing this for 30 years. Uh, there's a lot I don't know. Um, in fact, I, let's say I didn't know jack about transmissions, but I did know how to lead. I knew how to uh, create a vision and move move a team towards that vision, uh, which was growth. And now we've had six straight years of growth, which is cool. But but think about what is it that you want to do? I I didn't even know if um, the skills from the army would transfer. So I, on my own during my transition leave, I, I took a three week course, um, executive leadership course at Dartmouth, at Dartmouth College. Um, there were 30 different corporate executives from nine different companies around the world, primarily the US. And I learned a lot. But what I also learned from it was, hey, what I've been doing and learning um, as a part of the US military, the US Army, is pretty dang good and can be applied. So all that was very, very helpful. Uh, so transitioning, you, you, you get that gut feeling in your gut of, you know, is this what I want to do? You have to decide also if you want to continue to work. I've got a lot of peers who just who wanted to retire. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, they had their, their check a month or whatever. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I, for me personally, I know I want to be engaged. Um, so my wife says, well, when are you going to start working? I said, well, I'm 70 years old. I, I want to continue to be engaged because I almost feel like, you know, start deteriorating if you're not engaged doing something. Uh, so that's how I looked at it. I don't if you have a follow-up, um, does that answer your question? It does, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for the insight. Thank you. All right, sir. We're going to bring in Anton McDuffie. But before we do, I just want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're coming up. We're, we're about 56 minutes now. Do you have time for a few more questions? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to meet um, um, the CEO of my company and a couple other people with uh, uh, with a congressman uh, for dinner. But I told him this would probably go over and I probably won't make it. So I'm good. Well, <laughs> sir, we won't we won't keep you. We just no, got a few more okay. questions. Okay. All right. I'm going to bring in Anton McDuffie to see if uh, we can get his mic working this time. Hey, sir. Can you hear me? All right. Anton, how are you? Hey, sir. Appreciate your leadership and your insight um, and, your, and your stories. Um, brains me back. I've, been, I've, I've transitioned out of the, uh, the military. Um, I was a former ADA officer. And wow. um, my, my question would be to those who are kind of at that crossroads, whether they're um, that captain at five years or you know that major around that uh, transition to be a major at that 10-year mark, what what would you tell them? What advice would you give them um, or, or peace for as far as retention um, to keep them in? Because I know I was at that point and there are some times where you feel leadership, you know, do they say enough to you to get you to stay in? Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of times it's the individual's choice, but I felt that I could have been pushed over the edge one way or the other. Um, so what would you tell that person? Interesting question because uh, uh you know, you pick as a general officer, I think I had nine different aides, um, aide de camps. And I picked people who I thought were innovative, thought differently. You can say out of the box, whatever. I know that's a kind of a trite term. Um, but many general officers feel like um, the aide de camps you pick, you're picking the future leadership of the Army. I just didn't look at it that way picked innovative people. 
the vast majority of um, almost every one of my aide-de-camps ended up leaving the army and doing really great things. One is a state senator in Illinois. Another is, uh, 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 no, two are FBI agents and doing very well. And others are doing just neat things. One started a, a, a tech company and doing well. So I don't, the idea of, of, of wanting you to stay in the military, I want you to do what's best for you and our country to an extent, but what is it that you want to do? Um, there's a decision point though, and maybe it's at the, you know, maybe it's at the 14 year point where um, you're now six, six years away. And I just don't want to get economic here, but six years away from having a check for life, which, you know, might be a mortgage payment. Um, so my recommendation there is stay in, stay in the 20. But when you're at the five-year mark, 10-year mark, um, there's a lot of opportunities. I, I look now at, um, you know, the, the, from the corporate world and think, my goodness, I should have left a long time ago with this kind of, you know, they, they compensate well. Um, but I liked what I was doing. I never thought about uh, really compensation. It just never crossed my mind. Um, so it, you got to figure out what you really want to do um, and know that regardless, less than half of what 1% of America uh, has served in uniform. So um, you walk out proudly and then do something else because we all have to leave sometime. Um, there's a couple of CEOs in my class at, at West Point who got out at five years, doing very well, uh, extremely well, um, because we need leaders everywhere. So I, I guess going back to your question, um, I don't know if I would sit there and try to convince you to stay in. At, at the tenure mark, at what's best for you. And again, that's that's leadership. You're not, I, I never felt like it was just leading you because you're in the army, leading you because you're a person I care about um, and we care about, and let's figure out what's best for you and your family. Does that answer the question or do you have a follow-up? That does, sir. You know, I, I, uh, my, my decision to leave was based on family. Um, now nah, you hit it right on the head, sir, and I appreciate that. Thank you for the question. All right, sir, I'm going to bring on, uh, well, I think next we're going to bring on another question. Uh, this time is going to be from, excuse me one second. Uh, we're going to bring on Ryan Brents. Ryan, let's see if we can bring you on. Hi, sir. Do you hear me? Hello, Ryan. How are you? Good, sir. Sir, um, I was actually. I'm not used to being called sir anymore, but go, go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, sir, I was uh, General Rossi's aide de camp back in 2011 and 2012 at Fort Bliss while you were in command. So I might look familiar. Um, I saw you around you at quite a bit of different events and services, but I really remember the work you did around mental health and suicide prevention on post, and I truly appreciate um, your work. Um, it's had a legacy that's gone on past your your. Uh, time frame so it's great to platform and i've really gotten a lot out of this session so far my question to you sir is twofold uh, number one there's this term that's really starting to get uh, more widely used called psychological safety how do you feel like you've been able to really garner 
psychological safety with your followers throughout the year, whether it's in the military or now in the corporate world? And number two, as my follow-up question to that, once your followers really feel a sense of transparency and trust um, associated with that psychological safety, how do you help people that you know are personally struggling? So you've built a relationship, they've told you that they're struggling, but they still got to get the job done um, somehow, some way, or the team does. How do you kind of foster a sense of encouragement for those individuals? Well, if you don't mind, I hit the, the second one first is, one is realize that you're not a behavioral health specialist unless you actually are. Um, so you wanna make sure you get them help, um, whether it's starting with a chaplain and starting with a behavioral health specialist. Um, if you know that they're struggling uh, or encourage them to, to get help, um, there's not enough of that in the civilian world. That's for sure. I mean, as we're, we're trying to come up things with the corporation I, I work for um, and it's just not as many tools as we had in the, in the military. So it's, if you know someone's struggling, you work with them, you get, get everybody involved um, as much as you can without um, 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 messing up the, your, their confidence, you know, as far as if they've told you something confidential, you don't want to turn that except if you think that they, you know, may hurt themselves or, do something that they will regret for like the rest of their lives. Um, so that would be the first thing. And then I'm, I'm not really familiar with, um, with that term that you use, um, psychological. So can you just define that for me real quick? Yeah. Uh, sir, just really, I mean, ultimately it comes back to gaining trust for people to be transparent and be open and honest with how they're, how they're doing, you know, how they're feeling. I think of the army, you know, I was obviously a veteran and then, played sports my whole life. So there's this idea of, you know, tough it out, uh, get through it, you know, figure it out yourself. And so I think what you tried, what you did in the military with uh, the assist program and really trying to foster resiliency through community and being transparent, how have you done that personally in your own relationships um, throughout your time in command and in, in the corporate world? Yeah, it, trying to be as transparent as you can um, with your friends, um, but also understanding that, um, yeah, again, I see this in the corporate world. Uh, you show a ding in your armor and and folks, they can't help it. They, they're going to like sharks in the water. Uh, so it, it it's being transparent and trusting to your circle of people that you do trust. Uh, I, I, I wish it were different than that. Um, but that's certainly what I see now. What I hope to have fostered, um, and again, cultural change takes a while. So I, I know that it didn't just change at Fort Bliss because we wanted to, but I was there three years to be able to help that. Um, but we wanted people to be much more transparent in that environment because we felt like it was an environment where if leaders did not respond, we would hold leaders also accountable uh, for not um, not listening to um, their soldiers in some ways. Um, again, it's different than the civilian world on that uh, because you're 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 very reluctant to tell anybody anything um, because that, it's so competitive in that way. Um, but you should be able to tell your circle 
of trust, your friends, your family overall. I mean, I've now I have my, my sons who check up on me and see, dad, how are you doing? I'm doing the same thing with them. Um, and they'll, they'll look at, well, have you talked to your, you know, uh, some of the, my, my best friends from high school, I'm still in touch with, there's this group of four of us. Um, so have you talked to uncle Tony lately? Well, no. So, well, you know, I, you need to tie in with them, dad. And so I, I, you, you need to be transparent with those you trust. Um, is what I would tell you on that. And Ryan, I have to ask you another thing. Were you sure. at the seventies party that, that, um, that, uh, General Rossi had? Oh, I was, sir. Okay. I was kind of playing uh, crowd control with that one. <laughs> um, I loved General Rossi's parties. Um, I mean, he was always big on the, the Halloween, um, but God rest his soul, just an unbelievable man. And I know you were a great friend of his. So, just a pleasure to see you on this platform, sir, and um, wish you the very best of luck. You too, Ryan. I've gotten rid of all the pictures of me in that that Afro wig I had. Afro, <laughs> yes, sir. I remember. I remember. <laughs> Didn't post that on any social media. We can find it. Okay. We'll have to find these. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, all right, Dana. I'm going to bring in uh, Wes Cochran, and then we've got one question from social media, and then we'll. We'll uh, let you go. Thanks for being so patient with your time. Absolutely. Hey, Wes. Hey, sir. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. All right. I've, I've succeeded to get past the mute threshold, so I'm feeling good right now. <laughs> um, okay. I got two two quick questions. I think they'll be easier ones for you to answer. But uh, the first one is you already kind of addressed your skills. You, you wanted to get ahead of any kind of skills gap you had when you left the Army, and you were pleasantly surprised that you, you weren't really far behind your peers. But um Looking at your leadership approach, uh, reflecting on those six years since you retired, has your approach to leadership in the military with those teams on active duty, has that served you well in the corporate side or have you felt like you've had to change drastically the way you approach leadership in the civilian sector? Yeah, it, it has had to evolve somewhat. Um, and it depends, on, again, uh, I was, I guess, fortunate in some ways, um, the, the area I was responsible for, you know, defense programs for Allison transmission, had seven years of declining revenue from 2008-2015. Uh, so when I came on board, I was told, no, we're, we're going to have a couple more years of declining revenue, so don't worry about it. It's like, well, I'm about growth. So really focused on growth. And uh, we've now had, as I mentioned before, six years of growth. I've uh, been very fortunate, but that's not by accident. Um, it's forming teams. Um we're trying to uh, expand internationally. So I asked our international team, hey, we, we need to get, I need to get to these fo- the following goals here. I said, well, you know, they kind of shrugged off and said, well, if, um, if, if, if there was any business out there, we would have found it. I said, okay, well, I'll go with you on a couple trips. So I realized this is within four months. It's like, okay, so really replace the entire international team. That was not normally my style at all. My style was you work with what you have and you develop, um, but quickly saw that there needed to be a change. Um, so that was different. I, I really wasn't a leader who really fired folks for the most part, unless it just had no other choice. Um, so that was different. Um, how you uh, approach people, um, you know, you might slap someone in the back in the, in the military and you don't touch anybody in the, in the you just don't. Uh, so getting used to um, not being as hands-on in that regard. 
Um, and the kind of questions you can ask people or not ask people, especially in the pandemic, you, you can't ask a person why they are or are not wearing a mask. Um, uh, we now um, have, we know who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, you got to wear a mask. Um, but let's say you're vaccinated, you're wearing a mask. You can't question somebody and say, well, why are you wearing a mask all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay. It, it's just different. And so understanding, um, you know, the, uh, the kind of territory that you're coming into, I think is really important. Um, whether it's, I've got friends who uh, are college professors, but you got to be careful. I mean, as far as, um, you know, with, with young students and being alone in classrooms, whatever. Um, so it, it caused me to evolve my leadership, still had this, you know, strategic vision and figuring out a plan and developing plans to get there. Uh, but it still uh, caused me to to change. And that's okay. I mean, that's what life's about. You constantly evolve. Um, but And it's not many people that I'm in charge of at all. Um, but it's a business um, that the objective is not killing ISIS like I was before leaving. It was to now grow the business. Thanks for that answer, sir. Uh, my, my second question is, is unrelated. It's not a follow-up, but... Um, I just want to ask you, how have you managed ambition? Ambition is not always a bad thing. It can be a really helpful thing. Um, but, you know, there's a dark side to it as well. So what advice would you give to younger leaders or folks uh, in, in any kind of professional capacity about managing their own ambitions to to do well, but also to to be healthy in that respect? Yeah, you know, we, we often give ambition, you know, like kind of a um, a, a dark side. It's like, oh, they're so ambitious. It's like, okay, well, you know, um, Field Marshal Montgomery and Eisenhower, they're all ambitious to an extent. Um, I, it, we're all creatures of what um, what we were taught and what we learned. Uh, when I was a high school student in Texas, I went to a bunch of leadership workshops, um, which was cool. I and And what I was taught at the time was, or what I learned was, you let people know what you want to do, uh, you know, your ambitious goal, and they will naturally want to, uh, to help you and follow you. Um, I, I bought into that. Um, I, I was student by president of the, the third largest high school in Texas at the time. So I, that's when I went to West Point and walked in as a kind of new cadet and said, Hey, I think I want to be the first captain. <laughs> um, it had the opposite effect. It was like, um, who do you think you are? Um, you know, you know, whatever they called you, beanhead, smack, whatever it was. Um, even my own classmates were like, so I learned early on, keep your cards close to your chest. That was a lesson I've learned the rest of my life. Um, so I haven't really said, I want to do this. I mean, um, so I don't know if that's good, uh, but that's what I've learned uh, that, in fact, if you tell people what you want to do, they'll put up block, you know, blockades and obstacles uh, just because they'll feel like you're too ambitious. So um, I say keep your fire going. Uh, maybe let uh, some of your trusted friends know what you want to do. Um, or uh, if, in fact, you are in, you know, an organization, you say, well, I think I should be the CEO. OK, well, work to do that. Um, but I don't know if I would advertise that uh, again, I, maybe I still have shade from, you know, back as a new cadet on, on that, but, uh, I, 
I've always always thought that coming across as, as humble as you can, but working hard, but still having goals and trying to achieve those goals. It's what's important. And, and it, it works for many people. Um, I've got friends and peers who have been, quote, water walkers literally their whole lives. Um, for me, I've been a roller coaster up and down with it. But I, I feel like you gain much more resiliency by doing that. And you fall off the horse, you know, you just dust yourself off and get back on the horse. But a lot of people don't have those kind of experiences because they've always been, um, you know, I don't know, below the zone, whatever you call it, uh, in different organizations. Um, so when they end up really crashing at some point when they're older, they may not have the skills to recover. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much. Sir. I don't know if that answers your question. Definitely appreciate the both answers. Thank you. Thanks, Wes. Thank you, Wes. Well, Dana, we have uh, taken up a lot of your time. I've got one little real, real quick rapid fire question here. This is from YouTube. Okay. Uh, it says, having a vision for yourself enables goal setting. What is your vision for yourself 10 years from now, professionally and personally? 10 years from now? My goodness, I'm like <laughs> old. Uh, I, I hope I'm still engaged doing something. I uh, it At least in... Um, the global manufacturing company I'm in and it appears to be in the industry. There's a certain age. I mean, they don't have age discrimination, but they start giving you hints like, <laughs> when do you think about leaving? Uh, so I know that's going to come up pretty soon uh, or in the next couple of years, but it's then transitioning to doing something else. I mean, I know people have goals of uh, retirement. They just want to fish and that's okay. That's not for me. There'll be an, another challenge out there, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's, um, doing uh, serious volunteering, um, but there, so I'm not answering your question. Your question is, what are the goals? Um, have some financial goals uh, for generational wealth. Um, every, um, every six years since 1981, been able to double net worth of, mm. of all our, of equities ever since then. If you think about that, that's 40 years of doing that. Mm. I want to figure out how do you continue doing that? Um, and been very fortunate. Um, and those are just conservative investments with IRAs, mutual funds, stocks. Um, so I want to keep that going because that, that will, will be generations um, of my, my family that started uh, with sharecroppers and slavery just, you know, a hundred and some odd years ago, 150 years ago. So, um, so we'll be engaged with that. Um, but also engaged in helping people. Um, I, the, the work that I still want to do with things like suicide prevention, I'm on a board of directors of a, of, uh, of a nonprofit, um, uh, to prevent youth suicides. That's a passion. So I want to continue those kind of passions. Um, that's what I'm looking forward to doing. Dana, it has been an absolute joy to have you on the show tonight. Thank you sincerely for investing this time in the leaders on this show. I think that's just a testament to your humility and your leadership and your desire to continue to serve. So thank you so much. I'm going to leave you with the last word. If you want to mm -hmm. tell people where to connect with you, or I know that you're, I believe you might be appearing on national TV tomorrow, uh, but anything you want to share is just a parting word. And uh, again, thanks so much for your time. Well, absolutely. I appreciate everybody even listening in. 
uh, tonight and, and participating. Um, I do believe that leaders are not born. I mean, they're, they're, they're trained, they're formed, they evolve, um, and there's different situations. It's, this is a, a Clausewitz kind of quote, but you know, the best company commander is necessarily the best regimental commander who isn't necessarily the best brigade commander and not the best uh, corps commander because it takes different types of leadership at different levels. Um, and, and if you can't adapt and evolve your leadership for different situations or different organizations, um, then, um, you'll, you'll fall behind and be less, less effective is what I would say. Never forget your core, you know, who you are, um, and your core values, but how you apply your leadership to different situations, I think is, is key and being as effective as you can. And please follow me on Twitter. If you can, it's at Dana Petard and I will be on CNN tomorrow, I think at 11 a.m. or maybe 1115, uh, talking about uh, the testimony of um, my old friend, uh, General Mark Milley, uh, General Frank McKenzie, a CENTCOM commander, Marine, who I know well, um, and uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. So tune in. All right, thank Dana, you. We, we will. Thank you so much. And uh, to all the people who tuned in, thank you so much. Uh, please uh, continue to connect with us on social media. Feel free to subscribe to the Intentional Leader Podcast. And Dana, again, thank you so much for your time tonight. Can I mention one more thing? Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely. I, and it gets back to um, having confidence in yourself. Don't sell yourself short um, when you're leaving the military or whatever. I mean, I just quickly described today, I met with uh, different senators on Capitol Hill representing my company, my CEO and I did. One of them was Senator Joe Manchin. Um, you know, I had to pinch myself and think, I'm here talking to Senator Joe Manchin, who, who is the key to so many things with uh, you know, the infrastructure bill and, and so much is yeah. going on. But you hold your own um, because you have confidence in yourself and what you're doing. So again, uh, believe in yourself. And that would be my last word. I love that. Well, we're going to end with that. Thank you so much, Dana. And thank you again to everybody that tuned in. We really appreciate it. Hey, friends, I hope you enjoyed that fun conversation with Dana Petard. Again, big thank you to General Petard for making that possible. What a fun, wide-ranging conversation. And again, thank you to the audience members who asked those questions. A few big takeaways for me. One, I've got to be more disciplined about my fitness. And for me, being in the military so often, fitness becomes something I have to do because it's part of my job. But what a wonderful example, General Petard, of just being disciplined in so many different areas of your life, being disciplined financially, making sure, wow, incredible that he's been able to double his net worth every six years. Also, just the way that he lives his life in a disciplined way, but also a, a, a fun way of being fit, challenging his family. And I loved what he said about just some of those leadership principles about willing, being willing to challenge the status quo, being willing to accept risk, being willing to go into a place and change the culture. And that's one of the things that's clear if, as you, as you kind of watch the arc of General Petard's career, he was willing to take not just, not, not, not reckless risks, but he was willing to take risks for the right reason going at going at Fort Bliss and being willing to attack the status quo and trying to improve the lives of soldiers 
in a mental health capacity, which meant maybe opening up the base, maybe allowing people to come in. Uh, and you're going to have critics. You're going to have critics when you start to try to change a culture. But what a great example of someone who's willing to do that. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what, what you enjoyed the most. If For those of you who really enjoyed this, please go share it with a friend, share it with someone in your network. Also, we really appreciate it when you go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating, a review. That really helps us grow. It only takes about a two minutes, I think. A friend of mine did it the other day, went on there, gave us a review. It really, really helps. Also, if you'd like to partner with us, if you'd like to help us gain resources so that we can grow, we have a really ambitious desire to grow this and to help more and more leaders, especially young people. You can join us, go to Patreon, just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters, and you can partner with us with just a little bit of money every week or every month. That really helps us. Uh, Friends, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this community. I really, really appreciate your time. I know that time is so important and we hope that every time you're here with us, you leave inspired and you leave with some practical things that you can go and apply to your life and leadership right now. Friends, go and make it a great week. Go and impact the people around you. Invest in them. Pour into them. Pour into yourself. Remember that life is short, so let's go make it count.